If you have your Bible, please turn in it to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, as we keep going through the book of Romans, just in the order of the verses that God has laid them out, we've come today to Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. We started looking at these verses last week, and we're going to finish looking at them this week. Let me just go ahead and read, um, starting in verse 8 and go through 10, but we're looking specifically at 9 and 10 today. It says this, um, oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, I think it's page 948 in that Bible, and you can have that Bible if you don't have your own hard copy of the Bible for yourself. Uh, all right, here's what it says, Romans 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Ah, love. Love. It's so good. This is one of the reasons why I just appreciate getting to preach verse by verse through the Bible is because if somebody were going to say, hey, we, we, we have this passage here on the perfect love of neighbor. Let's find the warmest, squishiest guy around that we can find to talk about the love of neighbor. Everybody would say, Daniel Wiggins, and he's the guy. No, they it's, it's obvious. I'm just so stone cold sometimes. But I love the word of God. And I love that God has let me get to preach this because it's just the next thing that's here for us about this love that we get to have for God and for neighbor because he has first loved us. Now, what we're, we're to be about as, as we go about our walk in this world, it's kind of, that's the subject of these chapters that we're in, is the, the first 11 chapters have told us, kind of focusing in on, here's what God has done for you in Christ, sinner. God has sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. And, and it's all summed up, uh, in those 11 chapters, but now we come to chapter 12 and 13 and on through 16, and it's, it's telling us, well, now that you, believer, brothers, beloved by God, have received the love of God in Christ, here's what to do. It's all done for you already, so here's what to do. And, and the part that we've come to here in, in chapter 13 is the way that we're to live in this setting of being among other people. He talked back in, in chapter 12 about the setting of being in, in the church family and the kind of love that is to be genuine in the context of the church and the way that we're to use our spiritual gifts toward each other and the way that we're supposed to bless and not persecute. He kind of moved out from the church to the world that we live in and the fact that in this world that we will face persecution and trials and difficulty and people that we would be tempted to to take vengeance upon because they really have sinned against us? And, and how does our, our love play out in those personal relationships? And then we got into chapter 13, and he starts to talk about, well, how, how does this transformed heart and this transformed life, how does that play out in the way that we, we deal with living in a society that is governed by people who may not know God? And, and, and we are trying to sort through these things of how, how do we relate to government leaders and government laws, and the gist of it was obey unless they're telling you something that would be a disobedience to God, but, but know this, that God is the one who established government order so that we could have order, 
so that we could not just have everybody running off into the chaos of their sin and destroying each other, and, and that in general that's what those governments are there for, is to, to promote what's good and to punish what is evil. And of course they don't do that perfectly, and we pray that they would do it better. We pray that just about every week here, that they would do it better. But that's the context of where we've come to today, is saying, hey, as you're living in a society where all kinds of people are doing all kinds of things, he's told us, if you, Christian, want to live in this society in a way where, where you're not scared of the governing authorities, if you would have no fear of them, then here's what you do. Start focusing on living as a person who loves your neighbor. Start focusing on living as a person who is following the commands of God that have to do with love of neighbor, being about the business of doing good so that even if, as it says in 1 Peter, even if they accuse you of doing evil, that one day they'll be put to shame because, because it will be demonstrated that you were seeking to do good and to love your neighbor and all of these things. And so as we come to that, that's kind of the context here. It's not just, it's not just given to us as, hey, love your neighbor, do these commands. It's, it's, hey, as you navigate your relationships in the sinful, fallen world and trying to figure out, you know, how, how do I live as a peculiar people who are called out of darkness into light in the middle of this dark world, well, here's what he says. Be about love and be about love in the way that God has said to be about love, which is in obedience to his commandments. The kind of love that it's talking about here, the kind of law that relates to this love is, is the kind that's in uh, the second half of the Ten Commandments. The, the kind that has to do with the love of neighbor. Sometimes we call this the second table of the law. And we, we talked about this a little bit last week, and so I won't, I won't repeat everything said last week, but just a reminder that the Ten Commandments are kind of the summary statement of what God says is morally right and wrong for all mankind. And the first four of those commandments are summed up in the statement, you shall love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last six of those have to do with how your love of God would overflow into your love of neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what he's going to do here today. This is how God's word will direct us, is to say, if you want to be about the love of neighbor, look at the commandments. And if you want to be about obedience to the commandments, love your neighbor. So he says at the end of verse 9, I'm going to read the end of verse 9 before I read the beginning of verse 9. He says, all of these commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now with that in mind... If you've got your outline on the back of your bulletin, it'll help you follow along today. I appreciate if you might look there. And maybe just have a pen out, even if you're not taking notes, because it'll make me feel better. <laughs> but we're going to look at, just remind ourselves a little bit, as it says here, that they're summed up in this word, what is this law of the love of neighbor? And what does the law do? Well, it, what the law is going to do, and these laws about the love of neighbor, the last six of the Ten Commandments, they're going to be, first of all, a mirror on our own heart. And a mirror that, if we're using the Bible properly, is going to show us blemishes. It's going to show us ways, even if you've been walking with Christ for 100 years. I know you haven't. But you've been walking with Christ for a long time. That, that we're still going to need to hold God's word up to ourselves and see where do I need to be sanctified. 
And, and so it's a mirror on our failure to love. And it says this in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we need to know our sin. We, we need our knowledge of our sin to drive us to the grace of Jesus, too. That's part of what that part of the law does. That We call that the first use of the law. A second thing that the law does is it restrains what's evil, restrains wrongdoing against our neighbor. So this is something that is part of the reason why governments are in place is so that even people who don't care anything about God will have some fear of doing evil, even where there's not a a law against something. Sometimes it's a fear because people just kind of know, hey, this thing is wrong, and I don't want to be known as a doer of wrong. And so the law of God, his moral rules restrain evil to some degree. But as Christians, so that's a restraint, but as Christians we have a third use of the law that we have open to us, and that is as instruction for how we are to move forward in life and how we are to love God, and specifically today, how we're to love neighbor. And so that's, that's, uh, that's MRI. Remember that? Those are the three uses of the law. It is a mirror on our souls, It is a restraint of evil, and it is an instruction for good for Christians. This instruction for good, it says in in 1 John 4, 18, for us as Christians, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so as Christians, when we see those sins reflected on us by the law of God, we can say, hey, I I no longer fear that God's going to get me for all eternity for this. You know, he may may give me some kind of of discipline for sins that I carry out in this life that I shouldn't have. It's not out of hatred, it's out of love. And and he's going to move me forward. And and as I am, am, am fearing God as one who is known and loved completely already by God, I'm no longer obeying the commandments out of fear of punishment, but out of love of God. That's that third use, that instruction toward good that we as Christians can have. And so as, as, we, as we do this, we want to agree with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Those who don't know Christ, they don't love God's law. They may agree with it. They may try to prove that they're good as they list some of the rules that are in it. But you can't love God's law until you've been loved by God and forgiven for your disobedience. But that's one of the great things that happens. And we saw this back in chapter 6 of Romans, that when we have been saved by God's grace, we're no longer enslaved to sin. We are now free in Christ not free to disobey, but free to obey, where we once hated God and his law. We now love God and love his law. And as we look into these aspects of the law that are listed here specifically in verse 9, I want to uh, tell you one of the verses that Rick read for us this morning at the beginning of the service, Psalm 119, verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now what that is telling us is something that would be plain even if that verse weren't in the Bible, which is that these commandments are not just limited to the few words that they say on the surface level, but as you open up your Bible 
and go through and see all that God has said that he requires of us and the ways that he wants us to live and the ways he wants us not to live, that these are not just narrow things, that they are exceedingly broad and they cover many, many areas of our hearts and of our words and of our actions. So let's look at these commandments that are specifically here. This is what we're going to take most of our time on today is these specific commandments in verse 9 as we want to not just have a, you know, not, not just sort of like a vague feeling, not just a, an ethereal kind of, I want to be somebody who loves, and so I guess I'll just love. We, we want to go to God's commandments that tell us, here's what love looks like. So the first one he mentions here is the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is this, you shall not commit adultery. See, God's word has just told us that if you want to be a person who loves your neighbor, we have to take that commandment seriously. What is this commandment getting at? Well, on the surface level, it's just, you shall not commit adultery. But the Bible expands that. It is exceedingly broad. And I'll just summarize by saying, God has made our bodies, and God has made the whole process for intimacy between a man and a woman, and God has made marriage between a man and a woman, the one and only proper place for that intimacy. And in setting things up that way, he declares it to be good. But the desire of the flesh, the sinful desire, is to use what God has made in ways that are outside of how God has said to use them, in ways that God has said are not good. And it's kind of like every, every one of us has been given a Ferrari, and we've been given this racetrack, or at least told that there is a racetrack. That that's the one place where we can go, and we can drive the Ferrari as fast as we want. But don't do it out on the streets. That's kind of the position that we're in, in these bodies and in the way that God has set up that intimacy to be contained within marriage. And when we go outside of that, when we take the Ferrari out on the street, doesn't matter which street it is, we are in rebellion against God. Now that can come down to, just as every law of God can, not just the things that you would do externally, but also things that have to do with our hearts, with our desires. There is sinful desire. It says in Ephesians 2, 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you know what the rest of mankind tells us every day? The rest of mankind says, discover your authentic self and express it and live it out. And God's word says, do not do that. Do not go after the passions of your flesh. Do not be who you feel you were born as. That is the path of death. You must be born again. If you say to yourself, well, because I have these desires in my flesh, they must be good because God made me. God made me, and therefore, the way that I feel, the desires that I have, they must be God-given. Well, the Bible says this, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, 
but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's 1 John 2, 16 and 17. So just to say that up front, sinful desires are those kinds of sinful desires to use our bodies in ways that God has not ordained. Those desires in themselves are sin. And we need to crucify the flesh along with its passions and receive forgiveness from God and Jesus Christ. So there's those desires. There are adulterous thoughts as well. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, what do you do about that? Well, he says, well, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I don't want to see anybody show up next week with a missing hand and a missing eye. Because what you'll find is that you will still have a lustful heart and a missing hand and a missing eye. Jesus' point there, though, is you can be a breaker of the seventh commandment even if nothing ever comes out in your physical actions because you can break it in your heart and God sees the whole thing. And when we find ourselves breaking God's commandments, that we can take extreme measures to cut off those temptations and desires. Extreme measures. Now, you may think to yourself, it is just too extreme to confess this sin to a brother or sister in Christ or to my pastor. It is not too extreme. You may think to yourself, it is just too extreme to put up blocking software on my phone that a friend, that a Christian friend can monitor where I'm looking on my phone. That is not too extreme. You may say it's too extreme not to have a phone or not to have internet access in my home. That is not too extreme. And that's Jesus' point there. And we need to recognize where our hearts have led us astray and repent and receive the forgiveness of Christ as we trust in him. Adulterous thoughts, adulterous words, like Proverbs 7.21 says, with, such, with much deceptive speech she persuades him, with her smooth talk she compels him. Not just your desires, not just your thoughts, but your words can be a breaking of the seventh commandment. Words that stir up lust in ourselves, words that stir up lust in others. Well, and then obviously, actions. Many, many kinds of actions. Many of those actions were once illegal in the United States and in various states. Many of those actions are no longer illegal. Some of those actions still are illegal because even the world around us that has a declining moral compass still knows, even though they can't explain why, certain things are still just wrong. But we as Christians need to recognize, hey, in this commandment to love one another, part of that commandment is, I need to get up every day asking God to, to restrain the desires of my flesh and to help me walk in obedience to the seventh commandment, not just out of my own personal desire to be good, not just out of my desire to please God, although what greater desire could there possibly be? What better desire? But also that would flow into love of neighbor. It affects your neighbor deeply, deeply. 
And if you say to yourself, well, I'm in a situation in life where it doesn't affect my neighbor, yes, it does. Maybe your future spouse sinning against them deeply right now if you're involved in those kinds of sins. Your future children or your current adult children. These kinds of sins are rampant in nursing homes. Guys, we have to be about the business as Christians of obedience to God out of love for him and out of love for neighbor. It says this in, in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or, listen to this, here's more instructions for us as Christians. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's... Jesus bought us. Christian, here's what you can do. You can say, Jesus bought me. He bought not just my soul, but my body. I want to glorify God in my body. The next commandment that he lists here, out of love for neighbor, is this. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. The sixth commandment. Here's what murder is. It is is and always has been the sin of disagreeing with God about his decision to give life to someone. Or to continue to give life to someone. Now, we can have, just like with the Seventh Commandment or any other commandment, this can come out in actions or in words or in thoughts and heart. And those actions, obviously, you should not physically murder somebody. Don't do that. <laughs> and it's strange that we have to say that, but no matter how much progress we feel like we're making in our world, people keep on murdering each other. And it's ugly. It is evil. No matter what the motivation behind it is, it is the destruction of an image of God. And it's awful. And, and even in the, the very plain sense of the word, even Christians have to be reminded sometimes that all murders actually are evil. I may have told you before that, that I knew a pastor at one point who I had a conversation with him about the mob and, and mob hits, and he said, well, they're not really killing bad people. Like, Boy, is that God's command? You shall not murder unless it's a... Or they're not really killing good people, is what he said. You shall not murder unless, unless they're not good people? No, that's not God's command. And of course, taking of our own life is murder. And that is one of the most hateful things that you could possibly comprehend doing against the other people around you in this world. I know many people have been deeply affected, maybe it was decades ago, by someone who took their own life. You know because of that, that that was not love of neighbor that they committed in that act. It doesn't mean that it is impossible for them to be in heaven right now. But boy, what an incredibly difficult thing to know someone's last action would be murder. If you, by the way, if, you have, if you're in that situation, there's, there's two great books that I want to point you to, both by a pastor named Bruce Ray. They're both 
really booklets. One is called Help, Someone I Love Died by Suicide. And the other one, I didn't write down the title, but I think it's Help, um, Someone I Love is, uh, well, I should have written down the title. My Friend uh, is Suicidal, I believe is what it is. But those two books by Bruce Ray, R-A-Y, very, very, very helpful for some counsel in those kinds of situations. But even if it's not just that, we could be reckless with our own lives. We could have unhealthy habits that we think, well, this is just me, but it's actually deeply affecting our neighbor. I remember a funeral I went to maybe eight or nine years ago of a man who was 47 years old and drank himself to death. I don't know if he got into that thinking, this is just my own problem, but boy, it didn't end up as his own problem. We know multiple, know and love multiple children whose lives have been upended by the fact that their parents are addicted to substances that they probably, when they got into those substances, thought, I'm young and carefree and single, and it's never going to affect anybody but myself, not realizing that they were expressing hatred of neighbor to dive into those sorts of destructive behaviors of self. And then, of course, there's not just destruction of self, but destruction of others. Abortion is murder. It just plainly is. It is the taking of a human life unjustly. Now, in a room this size... Probably people in here who are trusting in Christ right now, who are looking back and grieving over the fact that they committed that sin. And we're so glad that God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, that he forgives sins. But we should not shy away from the fact that the taking of an unborn life is murder. That's not potential life, that is life. Even the carelessness Even Christian married couples being careless in what they're doing in their own bedrooms with the use of various kinds of birth control that may cause abortion because it never crossed their mind that that might be the physical mechanism that is happening to prevent you from having a baby. Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant to where you would take human life without knowing it. Guys, all kinds of of taking of of life unjustly, and the things that tend toward the taking of life unjustly. And by unjustly, I mean, yes, there is execution by the state. Yes, there is is just war in certain circumstances. Yes, there is sometimes a necessary defense of of yourself or your home. We know that all of those things exist, but, but guys, those are usually not the circumstances we're going to be in, and we need to be, with our actions, promoting life and not death. It's not just actions, it's also words. Jesus says that whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You can slander others. That's using words that are untrue to stir up hatred. You can gossip against others. That's using words that are true to stir up hatred. Those are murder words. Do not use murder words against each other or anyone. And, of course, our hearts. Jesus says in the rest of that passage, you have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Guys, these thoughts of hatred, God sees those. Where it may never come out in your words where it may never come out in your actions, 
But in your heart, you seethe in disagreement with God that God has given this person life. That is ugly. Don't have that. Don't have those grudges. Don't withhold forgiveness. Don't hate. But here's what we can do as Christians. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We can forgive others. As it says in Colossians 3.13, this is the opposite of murder. This is what we're called to. This is what we're instructed to. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then, of course, you know what? If we're going to love our neighbor in obedience to the command, you shall not murder, we need to tell people the gospel. Because if we are in the middle of a world where people around us are dying and doomed for hell in their rebellion against God, and we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we know the path of life, we know that they can be saved from their sins, to withhold that message is to essentially say, I do not care if you die and suffer for eternity. If we as Christians want to be about life, then we need to be about the telling of the path of life, the path of eternal life, the path of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then there's the question, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is not me. But we got to do it anyway. Go and tell the message of life, even if those who are perishing don't accept it. Because they may. And then the next commandment that he lists is the eighth commandment. It is this. This is in verse 9. It's you shall not steal. You shall not steal. If we want to be about the love of neighbor, we should take seriously the command, you shall not steal. Stealing was the first sin in the Bible in its plainest sense. Now, there's a, there's a lot more you can say about that, that action of Adam and Eve to, to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when God had told them not to do that. But, but the plainest, most basic thing was God has said, you can have anything in the world except this. The one thing that they were not allowed to take, they took, they stole. And I say they. And in our hearts, we want to say they, but the Bible says we. We all sinned in Adam. We came into the world as guilty thieves. And that sin of stealing, for many people, many Christians, myself included, that's actually the first sin that we remember willfully committing when we were children. Because it's really easy to say, I know that's not mine, but I want it, I'm taking it. And it plays out throughout life that we have to keep on restraining that. And stealing was even the first sin that led to the Bible's first recorded case of church discipline in Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira sinfully holding back what they had claimed to give. And it might not be a stretch to say that most of the civil laws that we have in our country and most of the civil lawsuits have to do in one way or another with stealing. And one of the main questions that every human society and human government has to answer is how do we promote prosperity while at the same time dealing justly with the human tendencies to steal and to cheat and to defraud each other. 
You know what you can steal? Just about anything. You, you think of something that can't be stolen, somebody will find a way to steal it. You can steal money. You can steal property. You can steal property that's physical or even digital or intellectual or all kinds of other ways. You can steal people. Those of you who have heard that the Bible is pro-slavery, listen to Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And 1 Timothy 1 says, enslavers are contrary to sound doctrine. There's a lot more we could say about that, but that's not where this sermon is headed. You can also steal people's work. You can steal their labor. There's the kind of oppressive conduct toward those that would be working for you, like Pharaoh showed toward the Israelites, where he said, I am taking away your straw, but you need to make more bricks. That's oppression, stealing, exploitation of workers. There can be not paying workers, not paying workers on time. You can steal time from people, too. You can steal time from God on the Lord's Day. Maybe you throw a bone to God and say, God, I'll give you that hour and a half at 10.15. When he said, it's the Lord's Day. It's given to you for, for this beautiful thing. You, you can steal time from your family. You can steal time from your employer when you're not working in the way that you're supposed to, when you're on the clock. Romans 13.7 says that you can steal honor from people to whom honor is due. You can steal potential from people. Maybe if, if you do harm to their bodies, it's not just a breaking of, of the, uh, the sixth commandment of you shall not murder, you shall not do what tends toward their physical harm or other harm, but also it could, could be cutting them back from the potential to earn money for their future. And maybe it's just not harming them physically, but it could be that, that you want to do harm to their reputation that would steal from them what they might be able to gain in the future. You could do harm to their circumstances, harm to their ability to earn. You know who you can steal from? You can steal from God. Malachi 3 says that withholding tithes is stealing from God. You can also steal from God by trying to use your big giving as a way to buy influence in the church. That is the sin called simony, named after uh, Simon, the, the, first, uh, the first known Christian heretic. There's also false teaching of, of false doctrine for financial gain. That's stealing from God. You know where you can find that? People stealing money by teaching false doctrine? On your TV set, if you have cable. Any Christian cable channel is going to have probably a lot of people who are stealing from God and people by teaching false doctrine for financial gain. You can, you can steal by refusing to teach people true doctrine unless they pay for it. Remember when, when Acts 17, when, when Paul goes into Athens and, and he starts preaching in the streets and, and, and debating with the philosophers and they want to hear more of this strange teaching about Jesus and the resurrection and and he gets to go all the way up to the Areopagus, Mars Hill. Remember what he said when he stood there? Men of Athens, my new book is on sale for $9.95, today only. No, that's not what he said. He said, listen to these words, and he preached them the gospel. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Freely give. 
You can steal from your nation by withholding taxes. That was dealt with earlier in Romans 13. You can steal from your employer in various ways by withholding your time, withholding your labor, or other ways. You can steal from your neighbor in all kinds of ways. You can steal from your family by refusing to provide for them. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And we can steal from ourselves by wasting what God has entrusted to us rather than using it responsibly. You can steal by unethical business practices. You can steal by being involved in a sinful industry. You can steal by stinginess. That's 1 John 3.17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You can steal by freeloading. This is 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He goes on and says, instruct these persons, command and encourage them in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You can steal by being involved in gambling. I know every time I mention this, there's there's probably going to be like 50 people who want to call and have a meeting after this. That's fine. If you are involved in gambling of any sort, you are involved in organized theft. Whether we're talking about down at the horse track, whether we're talking about down in Atlantic City, whether we're talking about the lottery ticket that you buy, whether we're talking about your, your game of poker at your house, your, uh, your sports pool at your workplace, you know what every single one of those things is? It is an organized agreement that people are going to steal from each other. You know what happened to Alexander Hamilton? He was murdered by Aaron Burr. And you know they had an agreement about it? That doesn't make it not murder. And if you win the lottery, sure, yeah, all those other people, they bought tickets. But they're not happy you won. If you win the lottery, don't come to this church and say, hey, We can finally fix up everything in the building now. Don't do that. You you win the lottery, you're going to get disciplined. I'm telling you that up front. Because what you've done is you have stolen from all of those people in all of the poorest neighborhoods of the state who were putting their hopes and dreams on this. I could get worked up, but I'm not worked up yet. (laughs) What do we do as Christians? What do we do as Christians? Well, for one thing... Don't look at the commandment, you shall not steal, and say, God, thank you that I'm not a thief. That's exactly what the Pharisee that Jesus told the story about in the temple did, where he looked at the tax collector who made his money by by stealing and said, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. That's not the attitude that we need to have. We need to have the attitude that the tax collector had, where he said, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. We need to remember the most famous thief in the Bible. You know who that is? The thief on the cross to one side of Jesus, who said to Jesus, not, hey, I wasn't that bad of a thief. No, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. If you've stolen, restore what you stole. Just like Zacchaeus said, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone... I restore it fourfold. We need to be hardworking and generous. Like Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And we need to be content. You know what's behind stealing? You know why I haven't dealt with the heart sin that's behind stealing yet? It's because it's the 10th commandment. It's the one that's coming up. It says this, 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-8, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Which leads me to the next commandment that it says, the final commandment that he lists out explicitly here, you shall not covet. If we want to be about the love of God that would overflow into our love of neighbor, we need to take seriously the command, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. I'll read you the full text of it from Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's interesting because this is the heart sin that is behind the sin of stealing. And because it's a heart sin, even though it's listed here as something that has to do with the way that a society functions, the way that we are to love our neighbor, the way that governments function. This is a commandment that governments can't punish because no one can see inside another person's heart except for God. Of course, you can see covetous words coming out. You can see covetous actions coming out in theft. But only God knows whether we covet in our hearts. And yet, governments even as they can't punish it, have to take into account the fact that people are covetous in their sinful nature, to be aware of it, to restrain it as much as possible. But here's the problem. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 11. Those who desire to be rich, now do you know who that is? Could be rich people. Could be poor people. The Bible doesn't say that being rich is sin doesn't say that being poor is sin, but it says this, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things." Are you covetous? It might, might be for money. It might be that you're sitting around daydreaming about, what if I had a different job? It might be that you're sitting around daydreaming and saying, well, God has given this other person this status and this respect. Why not me? God has given this other person this power. Why not me? Or this family situation, or these children, or this health, or that set of spiritual giftings, etc., 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 Now, I'm not suggesting that you can't be ambitious. There is a sanctified ambition that's good. You want to drive forward in your life, doing good, working hard, making the most of the potential that God has given you for the glory of God. That's a good thing. But ambition is not sin, but discontentment is sin. There's a difference between those two things. It's good to say to yourself, I want to have goals I want to move forward in my life for the glory of God. It is not good to say to yourself, God should have given me these things that he has not given me. That's covetousness, which the Bible says is idolatry. 
It is a heart worship of things that are not God. It's also unloving. It's unloving toward our neighbor. It, it turns the neighbors that we're supposed to love, covetousness turns our neighbors that we're supposed to love into competitors. As we would look at each other and say, what position has that person achieved in area X and why haven't I achieved that yet? Or I have achieved this position in area X and my competitors are down there. That's just as much a heart of covetousness as the other. But I want to tell you this. If you're discontent, if you're coveting after what you don't have, you're not going to be content when you have it. The problem, if you're discontent, if you're covetous, is not that you don't have what you want. The problem is that your desires are out of order and they're insulting to God. Here's, here's what Jeremiah Burroughs says about this great Puritan who wrote a work on contentment. He says, my brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in these things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason, but the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world. And if they, have had, if they had more, then they would be content. But that is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind and then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. Guys, discontentment, covetousness is a failure to be satisfied in God. God is the one who satisfies. And if we would love God and if we would love our neighbor, we need to be content and not covetous. What can we do as Christians? Well, we can be content with God. Hebrews 13:5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You hear that, Christian? If you know that you have God, you need to know that that is enough for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Ever. We can give thanks. Giving thanks is the greatest weapon that we have against the enemy and the sin of covetousness. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we can turn our hearts away from storing up treasure on earth to storing up treasure in heaven. Matthew 6.19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then you know what he says after that in verse 9? He says, And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the other two commandments of that second table of the law that are not explicitly listed here are honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the ninth commandment. And I'm tempted to just go on and broaden up those commandments for you right now, too. But I just want to tell you, I hope that just by seeing these four, that you see that the love of God overflowing in the love of neighbor is very broad. It shows us that we're sinners. 
It drives us to the love of Christ, and it instructs us where we need to go. A couple of things that you can do with these things. One is this. When you are sharing the gospel, I'm not saying if you are sharing the gospel, when you are sharing the gospel, and you come across people, whether in your family or random people that you just happen to meet to tell them the gospel or anything in between, when you come across those who say, I am a good person, ask them about the Ten Commandments. What do you mean by a good person? Somebody who is a genius at this and instructing other people at this is Ray Comfort. And you can just look up Ray Comfort, YouTube, Ten Commandments. The internet will show you him doing this with many people if you want to know what that looks like. All right? But so many people are convinced that they are good people and they will even bring up with you on their own the Ten Commandments to say, I am good because I do not lie, I do not steal. Did you know that the commands of God are exceedingly broad and we're breakers of his commandments in heart, word, and deed? Did you know that the wages of sin is death? Did you know that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that that's the only path of life, that's the only way we can be counted as good, just, forgiven in his sight? Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. But guys, we need to look for ourselves. We need to look, for the perf- look to the perfect love of Christ. So where he says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We talked about that some last time, but I just want to point out to you, here is perfect love, Christ. Christ is the one who has perfectly loved us. Believer, if you are in Christ today, you are trusting in Christ, in repentance of your sin, and in 100% hope in him alone, as your forgiveness and your salvation, the path of eternal life, if you're trusting in Christ, you have nothing but God except 100% love with no mixture whatsoever of hatred. In fact, he has set his love on you from before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us for adoption in his son. He sent his own son in love to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. He came and applied the love of Christ to us in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know, what does love of a neighbor really look like? Look to Christ and look to the cross. He perfectly obeyed every single one of these commandments in every single way and went to the cross and died for all of our disobedience and rose from the dead, and offers forgiveness and life and perfect eternal love to all who will repent and believe in him. Trust in Christ, look to Christ, and here's the the beauty of this. Even toward, remember that that commandment that that came out in verse 9? You shall not murder. I think most people would say, well, that's the worst sin there is. And God is even gracious to murderers in Christ. Here's what it says in Acts 3, verse 14. He says, this is preaching to literally the people who crucified the Lord of glory, who crucified Jesus. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. But what does he say? 
Does he say, therefore, you have committed the unforgivable sin? No, he says this. He says, repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus. If you are not trusting in Christ today, repent and receive the love of Christ. Be saved. If you're trusting in Christ, know that he loves you. He may discipline you at times, but he will never do anything to harm you or to wrong you. He does 100% love to you. And when that's settled, when it's settled in your mind that I have been loved by God in Christ, then you know what we're free to do? We're free to love, to love God and to love others and to do it according to his commands because we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. We thank you for, um, I just thank you for your word. There are these little statements here that there's so much else said about them in the scriptures in so many ways, even beyond what we've said today, that that could be expanded upon in the commands of Christ throughout the Bible of, of how we ought to live out of love for neighbor and how we ought not to live that would be hatred of neighbor, even in ways that we've never recognized. God, I pray that where there are those who are still convinced today that they are sanctified in such a way that they don't need to repent of any of these things, I pray that you would bring them by the Holy Spirit to a point of brokenness over their sin and repentance, godly grief. And I pray that that godly grief would turn to joy as as you would grant them uh, forgiveness and cleansing of sin. God, I pray that you make us a people who are loving. We want to be a people who love our neighbor as ourself. We want to do that according to your law, not according to our own concept, our own uh, broken wisdom about what love looks like. You've laid it out for us in the scripture, so help us to obey. But God, I pray that you would just set our hearts on that perfect, 100% complete love of God in Christ and help us to love as those who have been loved. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.